Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Bless the speaking and the hearing of your word. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, you might find uh, this difficult to believe, but I was a very goofy kid. And you guys are saying, I just saw you talk to your hand. I don't find that difficult to believe at all. But if you'd known me in high school, uh, you might have found that hard to believe because when I went from middle school to high school, I was trying to do my darndest to not be the goofy kid. I was tired of being uh, the goofy kid in middle school that was teased. Uh, I was tired of being uh, not taken seriously by other people, especially girls. And so when I got to high school, starting my freshman year, uh, I decided I was going to put up like these shields, you know, around me. I was going to put this defense up around me, and all people were going to see was a serious person who played basketball. That was it, right? I'm a basketball player. I'm a serious person. That's all that you're going to get. And even through high school, some of that eased up and some of my uh, people, you know, let some people in a little bit uh, as friends. But that's essentially what I was doing. And as I was thinking about our stepping stones in high school, at least from my experience, that's when I started to really build well uh, some defenses or some barriers so that people wouldn't know as much about me. They wouldn't really know me uh, as I really am uh, apart from what what other people are expecting from me. Now, this happens for all of us, I think, at different stages. Some of us uh, learned this earlier on uh, because of some some troubled experiences in relationship or with friends. Uh, We all eventually get here, I feel, into adulthood. We learn how to have our defense up, how to put our barriers up. And there are a lot of reasons for this. Uh, I think the one that tops the list in my experience and in my time of ministry with people is that we do this because we don't want to be hurt. We don't want to be hurt by others. And so we kind of keep a little bit of space or a little distance or a little defense between ourselves and other people. Of course, in the midst of doing that, we do also miss out on potential connection, right? Deep connection with other people. Now, I was thinking about this in light of our sermon series because, of course, we're in high school, so I was thinking about myself in high school, and I was thinking about our own youth uh, that, we, that I work with every week, um, and I was also thinking about apologetics. That's the topic that we have for today, and we, we did this intentionally with high school. We felt like, all right, w- with high school, we wanted to do the bow tie. We wanted to to talk about the centrality of Jesus, right, and not all the other things that we get kind of trapped on uh, at, at that stage. We wanted to talk about vocation, as Pastor Pat did last week, and the freedom that God gives us uh, to not have to figure ourselves out completely, but just to see the people around us in life and where God calls us to love and serve them. And we wanted to deal with apologetics, right? How do we handle uh, challenges that come from within and from without uh, to what we believe about Jesus Christ? Christ. And usually apologetics uh, gets defined in one of two ways. I might be oversimplifying here, but this is what I've kind of found out over time of uh, being into this. One definition of apologetics is defending the faith. Def- have you guys ever heard that? Defending the faith, right? Um, another possible definition, which I think is actually the opposite definition, is removing 
defenses or removing barriers to the faith. And so I want to see what, which one it actually is, and we're going to use Acts 17, which you just heard, in order to determine that. So Acts 17 is a really interesting text. Probably you guys have studied it before or heard it before. Uh, it's kind of, it's typically the, the classic apologetics text in the New Testament because it seems to be dealing so much with culture clash and with the mind. So Paul is in Athens and Athens in, in that day is kind of like what would maybe come to your mind if you hear the, the name like Oxford or Cambridge, right? It's like this is a, a, a place of learning, of, of philosophy, of deep thinking, something along those lines, right? And so, Ath- so Paul is in Athens in this very philosophical place. And the way that I've always heard this story told is that you have all these people kind of into the latest new thing. We heard that in the text. They're into the newest things. I mean, it sounds like our own day in a lot of ways. What's new and shiny, right? Um, and, uh, and so Paul is going to engage people's minds, Right? He's going to connect with them at the level of their brains here. And you hear him talking with the philosophers and then going to, this, to the Areopagus, this place of kind of this temple of worship and new things and all these types of things. And he's going to engage their minds. And then he's going to find some points of connection. Right? He quotes their poets and, and tries to make kind of a reasoned argument for things. And essentially what he's going to do is... Uh, make the faith seem reasonable or rational to people so they might have some openness to it. And at one level, there's some truth to that telling of the story, but I feel like it misses something much deeper that's actually going on for the people in Athens. And that's what I want to unpack for you right now. So first, we notice that uh, Paul talks with, before he gets invited to the big temple place, he's talking with these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Does anybody know anything about Epicureanism or Stoicism? Maybe a couple of us have had some passing interest in this. I mean, we could be, who wants to talk World War II history? Okay, no, but you could get into, you could dig into d- deep history stuff like this. Uh, it's still somewhat popular. I'm not going to give you like the, the deep dive into it. I'm going to give you the Cliff's Notes. All right, for today, but I think this holds true. So Epicureanism, or Epicurus, the guy who came up with this, is essentially an approach to life that recognizes what you want to do is try to limit your experiences of hardship or pain or discomfort and increase your experiences of pleasure. Now, sometimes you, people hear that and they immediately think what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> but that's not necessarily what Epicureanism was about. It wasn't just straight hedonism all the time. The idea was, because they didn't think that would actually be a long-time pleasurable type of experience for people, right? But what they're really trying to do is control their environment, their circumstances, such that they decrease the amount of pain and hardship that they are experiencing and increase pleasurable experiences in order to have peace in their life. And when I think about them that way, I think, man, am I that different from these guys? I mean, I certainly think about my life and my daily routines in terms of like, how can I avoid painful experiences and have more enjoyable experiences? That's what they're dealing with. Now, the Stoics took a completely different approach to the same problem. They decided that you can't control your circumstances around you. The only thing you can control is 
your mind, and your response to those things. Does this sound familiar to you guys? These philosophies hold on even if we don't know their names, right? And so the, the idea there was to control your mind and your emotions and to uh, build your own kind of virtuous responses to things. So you don't control your environment, you control your self. And in that way, you avoid pain and suffering in this life. Now, there was another group of people that Paul is encountering in Athens, and they are your everyday Greek-Roman people who are kind of doing the religious practices that are common for most people, right? Just, I mean, if you think about in our world today, in our culture today, everybody's got religious practices of some way or another, depending on, regardless of how deeply they think about it or not, right? And so what he encounters there are people who are doing all of the Greek God worship things, right? And so you have all of these idols all over the place, you have temples to them, and your task essentially is to offer sacrifice to these different gods because they control all kinds of different things. So if you are you having problems in relationships, you can go to this God. Are you having problems with the crops? Go to this God. Do you need to uh, close a business deal? Go to this God. And so in that way, what they're doing is trying to influence the powers that be in order to avoid pain and suffering. Are you guys seeing a common thread here? What Paul is dealing with? See, you, you look at the surface of Athens or maybe even the surface of our life and you think that it's all here in the mind. But that is not where any of us live, actually. And you guys have probably heard me say this ad nauseum. I quote, I don't even remember who I'm quoting anymore, but quoting someone who says, it's not actually our minds that drive our lives. What is true is that what our hearts desire, our will chooses and then our minds justify our hearts desire, then our will chooses and our minds justify what our hearts are already after. And what Paul is seeing in Athens is not just an engagement of the mind to make a reasonable case for Christianity. He sees people who have built up all kinds of defenses, philosophical, ritual, whatever they are, to dealing with the problem of pain and suffering in their lives. What what Paul is finding in Athens is not some uh, greatly adjusted mental acrobatic people, but fellow sufferers. Paul is finding fellow sufferers in Athens. And when you think about them this way, you realize, at least I realize, that 2,000 years of history, a different language and culture, and there's really no difference between me and them. Which makes me also realize that in our own day, as we look around to culture clashes and differences that people have with each other and different worldviews that people have, underneath all of those things, all of those defenses is the same universal human problem that we are experiencing. How do we deal with pain and with suffering and with hardship? We might put up a lot of mental <laughs> barriers to it, but underneath it, we are all dealing with the same thing. And Paul recognizes that. 
Paul is not just doing a mental exercise with the people of Athens. His heart actually goes out to those people. You, you heard it at the very beginning in verse 16. Paul's waiting around. Thank you for giving us the background as to why Paul is by himself in a, in a city, right? Because he's waiting around for his, his partners in ministry, and he's looking around at Athens, and the text tells us he is distressed, right? He, his heart is pulled at because he's looking around at all these idols and all this busyness and all this chaos, and these people are like sheep without a shepherd, Right? Just like Jesus saw the people, right? They, they are like sheep without a shepherd. And so Paul engages them, cutting through the defenses to engage their hearts. He sees that they are exhausting themselves with all of their sacrifice and ritual and religious duty, and it's getting them nowhere. And so Paul says, you know, God isn't served by human hands. God actually created you. God is the one who puts you where he needs you to be. God is the doer. And actually all of the things that you are wearing yourself out with, is he talking to the Athenians or to us at this state? I don't know. All of the things that you are wearing yourself out with, you don't need to do this. Because in Jesus Christ, it is all finished. It's all finished. Paul sees that they are ignorant in their worship of God. You notice that? He goes to the temple, and these guys are covering all of their bases. <laughs> They've got all the different gods of all the Greek pantheon, and then they have a statue that's like empty that says, to an unknown God. Just in case we missed you, we're going to get you covered. And Paul says, sees their ignorance, but he doesn't come at them you know, in judgment for their ignorance. It's not like, you morons. Paul knows what it's like to be ignorant. He was ignorant of God until Christ called him. Pastor Pat talked about that last week. He, he thought he knew God, and he completely did not understand God because he didn't know Christ. And Paul, even later, understands that, that ignorance of God is synonymous with ignorance of ourselves. In Romans 7, he talks about what it's like uh, to not know ourselves, right? He says, the good that I would, I don't want to do, and the things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And he's looking to Christ. So when he sees the ignorance of the people in Athens, when, when God sees the ignorance of of people in our own world, in our own day, his heart is going out to them. And so Paul says, what you ignorantly try to worship, I will proclaim to you. I'm going to tell you who this is. And he tells them about God and he tells them about Jesus and his resurrection. You know, Paul sees people Whatever uh, dividing marks everyone tries to come up with. Well, I'm an Epicurean, I'm a Stoic, or this is my uh, politic, or this is my tribe, or this is my worldview. Paul sees through all of those defenses, and he sees universally people trying to avoid pain and hardship. I preached this uh, on Thursday night, and I had someone come up to me afterwards. He wouldn't let me say who it was because he didn't want to get... Um, tagged, but came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, I was thinking about uh, what you're preaching on here with these different thoughts and, and it occurs to me what you're saying is that almost every kind of religion and philosophy is trying to deal with the problem of pain through some sort of avoidance or escape. And in Christianity, what we see happening is that God allows us to find meaning 
in it. And I said, do you want to preach for me on Sunday morning? Because that was a far more succinct uh, saying of what I've been rattling on about for quite a while here. This is true. That's what Paul proclaims to the people. They're trying to just kind of shovel it away or bury it deep or hide it from other people. And when Paul gets on to talking about the resurrection, that's like just a, a one word too much for them. Because what he is proclaiming, which is radical to the world's ears, is that God himself would experience our pain and suffering. God doesn't come with his own new system of thought for you on how you can best control your environment or control your mind or control the powers that be. God gives up control in Jesus Christ. He places himself in the midst of suffering and death for us. It is a radical word to the world that God who created all things would do that for you. And he will lead you through your own experiences in life of pain and suffering to the resurrection. This is what's going on. So my question at the beginning, which you probably already knew my answer to, is apologetics about defending our faith? Or is it about God removing defenses and barriers that other people put up, that we ourselves put up, so that people can encounter Christ and the power of his resurrection. It's all about removal. That's what it's all about. And so I think back to myself, my high school self, and to be honest, I'm still me. And I think about the defenses uh, that we put up, right? Maybe the defensiveness I've certainly had around people, you know, the hesitance I'm tell to tell them what I do for a living or to get onto any kind of topics and feel like, oh, are they gonna think I'm reasonable or something like this? And then I think about Paul, and he is the epitome of a defenseless person. Paul goes into places today, he gets called a babbler, which I think I can relate because what am I at time-wise for the sermon right now? Right? He gets called a babbler, and other times he, he's told that he's out of his mind, and Paul will accept it. He says, I will be a fool for Christ. That's freedom. I mean, when we feel so much pressure in our lives to kind of build up around us a picture of what other people are supposed to see and what we're supposed to be like, for Paul to have that kind of freedom, I want that kind of freedom, right? To say, call me what you will, I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ. Paul is so free, he will engage anyone and anything, any, any issue. There's nothing he's afraid of. And sometimes as Christians, we have that temptation to kind of like circle up and defend ourselves against the attacks of the world. And we don't need to be on the defensive. Paul will engage anyone in anything, any issue, any worldview, any philosophy, any thought. They are all held captive to Christ. And so Paul is free to speak with anyone about anything. That's total freedom. Paul does not need to defend himself. In fact, when he gets arrested and when he's ultimately thrown in prison, you think, oh man, it's done. And he says, oh, I have a chance to talk to the prison guards and the fellow prisoners, right? He says, even if I am bound, God's word never is. And so Paul doesn't feel any need to be defensive of himself or defensive of God. And I, that is my prayer, that that is our freedom as well. We don't need to defend ourselves because Jesus is our defender. And you don't need to defend God. He doesn't need any defense. 
But you are free, you and I are free to tell his story to others that God through the Holy Spirit would break down those defenses and barriers and bring people to faith in Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.